Hi everybody, Duncan Green here with the uh, <clears throat> weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Um, I hope you're all surviving, um, not doing too badly, whatever the um, current version of I hope you're all well is. Uh, I'm surviving, I'm surviving the British winter, I'm surviving lockdown, I'm surviving all sorts of family stuff. Um, but the blog is a source of entertainment and interest for me anyway. I don't know about the rest of you. So we started off this week with the links I liked, and I think the real, my favourite is actually an oldie, but I just put it up there because we all need a laugh. Uh, a table of what academics mean um, uh, versus what they say. Example, thanks are due to Joe Blotz for assistance and to Cindy Blatz for valuable discussions actually means Joe did all the work and then Cindy explained what it meant. It is believed that means I think. It is generally believed that means a couple of other people think so too. Just very nice takedown of the sort of pompous language of academia, which uh, I always enjoy. One of the most popular posts on, on the blog over the years has been the what, what Brits say versus what they mean. And people do love these very tight, um, you know, sat satirical comparisons. Much more serious business on uh, the second blog of the week, which was um, every year there's a big moment in Oxfam, the Davos report, which takes months of preparation, huge numbers of people involved, lots of very fraught discussions about what goes in and what gets left out. And it's basically become a tradition within Oxfam to do a really good report for the Davos meeting of the World Economic Forum, which is normally in Davos, hence the name, in Switzerland. But this year was, of course, virtual. But that didn't mean they got away with it. We did another big report. And the, yeah, the Rolls-Royce, the, the gold standard for these reports are those stats we did a few years ago on the eight richest people have the same wealth as the 3.5 billion poorest half of the world's population. So those kind of grotesque inequality um, uh, figures uh, set the standard for our Davos report. Um, this one is called the inequality virus, and it's basically talking about the links between COVID and inequality. And as in many other situations with the pandemic, the general rule is that um, the, the, the virus has kind of aggravated and exposed and accentuated existing inequalities. Um, so what you've seen uh, on the very big scale is a boom at the top. The world's 10 richest billionaires, all men, no surprise there, have seen their wealth skyrocket by half a trillion dollars since March 2020. That's 500 billion dollars is how much the wealth of those 10 guys has gone up since the start of the pandemic. Um, and in contrast, of course, many communities have been thrown out of work, have been in terrible situations, quite aside from the health impact, there's been a massive economic and social impact too. And just to put that into uh, scale, and this is what we call killer facts at Oxfam, um, you know, contrasts which bring to light an injustice. That increase in wealth of $500 billion is more than enough to prevent anyone on earth from falling into poverty because of the virus and to pay for a COVID-19 vaccine for all. So just grotesque imbalances in the way the world uh, is structured and the way that shocks like COVID accentuate those imbalances. Um, this year, the report goes deeper into racial and gender inequalities um, and, and calls for sort of a big economic reset. So a very nice piece of work. Huge amount of work goes into those things. And I think it got a good, it looks like it got a good media impact this year. So we're all happy. Excuse me. <clears throat> Slug of water. Then the third one, 
Uh, third post of the week was one for the geeks. Um, right now, it feels like anything can derail everything. So are theories of change still useful? And this was by Oxford, uh, by Oxfam's Thomas Dunmore Rodriguez, who's one of our kind of campaign gurus and trainers and spends a lot of time helping people think through their campaign strategies and this whole question of theories of change. Now, theories of change, some people love them, some people hate them. I think they mean different things to different people. But um, Thomas is just reflecting on how his work on theories of change has been affected by lockdown. Um, and, and, and he says, applying a theory of change approach is hard, but in the current context, it just got a whole lot harder. And that is because the best theories of change emerge from face-to-face -face workshop settings. You discuss things, you thrash them out, you go down the restaurant or the pub and you keep arguing. And the end result can often remain a fairly sketchy story of change, but the beauty is in the process itself. It's often more useful for the team involved than maybe not so much for people who'd have to make sense of it afterwards, especially these incredibly complex theory of change diagrams. And I put up an absolute cracker from Brazil, which Thomas sent me. Um, all of that is much harder during lockdown um, because you don't have that time in the restaurant. You don't have that face-to-face -face time. People drop in and out of Zoom calls. People have got half an eye on their emails. Um, you can't read the signals in the room. There's a whole... So what he does is come up with um, a bunch of ways that people are, uh, are finding effective approaches um, to keep going, to keep thinking about strategies because it's not as if we stop strategizing just because we're in lockdown. Um, so what is working given all these challenges? And this is a conversation you have with a group of colleagues um, inside Oxfam and outside. One suggestion our group had was to adopt approaches that put a human face and human experience at the center of our theories of change, making them more meaningful at a time when many of us are questioning our individual role in making change happen. Now, some of the commenters on, the, uh, on that post, which did incredibly well, there is an inexhaustible appetite for wonky things like theories of change on my blog, apparently. Um, some of the comments were, well, this isn't really about the pandemic. This is just how to make theories of change work good anyway. And I think that's a fair point, but it's definitely an interesting reflection. Lots of good comments. Do go on there and add your own. Then the final post of the week, we're having less posts this week because I'm on furlough on Friday, so I'm not allowed to do any Oxfam activity, was from a former director, agenda director at Oxfam called Nikki van der Gaag who writes beautifully, I have to say. Um, and she's did, doing a two-parter. So the first part was the impact of the pandemic on gender equality, or gender inequality, more accurately. Mm -hmm. and, and the second one will come up next, next week, which is like what to do about it. Um, and the overall title she's chosen is Imagining the World Anew, which I rather liked. So 2020 was not a good year for women's rights. Women have borne the brunt of the effects of the pandemic. Um, the overall global picture is as alarming as I've ever seen in many years of being involved in feminist writing, research and activism. So in this first blog, uh, Nikki discusses seven of the main ways in which the pandemic has negatively affected women. And I think it is a really good summary with piles of links to research. If you want just a good overview of the gender impact of the pandemic, I haven't seen anything better than this. So I do recommend it. First, women have done by far the majority of childcare and homeschooling during the pandemic. Second, women, especially those from black and minority groups, have been more likely than men to lose their jobs. Third, lockdown has seen a surge in violence against women in the home. Fourth, there's been a rise in the number of girls dropping out of school, as well as a rise in the numbers of child marriages and FGM. So, you know, some serious impacts there. Fifth, 
the burden on the healthcare system is having wide-ranging gendered effects, not necessarily about COVID, but, for example, between 13 and 51 million women may be unable to access contraceptives because of the redirection of health systems to deal with the pandemic. Sixth, women are less likely than men to have access to technology at a time when every, so much of our lives is going online. And seventh, COVID has fed into a pre-existing backlash against feminism and women's rights, which may be one of the reasons why women's representation in so many countries has been largely absent from COVID-19 responses. They did some, num she's done, you know, she cites, I think, a UN Women report, which did some number crunching on, um, you know, the gender breakdown of COVID response committees and finds it's 75% male. So that's bound to have an impact in terms of what those committees see and do. So that was a fantastic summary of all the negative impacts. And don't worry, because next week she's coming back to say, and this is how you put it right. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that second piece going up next week. So that's enough from me. Have a great weekend, everybody, and see you next week. Bye. <laughs>